As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Tifa Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined as I always am by my good friend and producer Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing? Doing good. We're actually in studio, John. We are in the same place rather than being many, many thousands of miles apart, which is which is very nice. And we've just wrapped up a conversation with two very special guests on the topic of Real Madrid. Mike, you listened into that conversation. What did you make about it? Well, Real Madrid, I think our generation knows them as the Galacticos era spending all this money on top players, the best in the world, Ballon d'Or winners. And now recently we've seen them change their strategy and their recruitment and still spending a decent amount of money, but spending them on younger players. And as Dermot Corrigan said in this in this interview, they're buying players who they hope in three or four years become Ballon d'Or winners and not getting them at their peak. Yes, and one of those players is Jude Bellingham, who has been impressing everyone. He is part of a brand new strategy that Real Madrid have rolled out this season, and we talk about that as well. But as always, I think the best thing for us to do is to just get straight into the conversation. So this is Real Madrid and the next chapter in their history. So Real Madrid inevitably attract attention because there is simply no club in world football quite like them. In the early 2000s, they embarked on a programme of introducing Galacticos to the team in a bid to dominate the European scene. And that is precisely what they did, winning six Champions Leagues in the intervening period. That included a series of three Champions League final wins in consecutive years in the mid-2010s, with a team comprising of an incredible cast of names. Names that everyone will know, Marcelo, Sergio Ramos, Casemiro, Kroos, Modric, Benzema and Ronaldo fast forward to the present day and the Real Madrid starting 11 looks very different only a few of those names remain on the team sheet and with Kroos and Modric finally being phased out of the team by the end of the season the last remnants of those famous teams could have gone the big question is what does the next chapter of Real Madrid's history look like well fortunately I'm joined by two people who can help us answer this question Dermot Corrigan is one of the athletic Spanish football writers and the author of Football Fans Guide to Madrid and we're also joined by Jose Perez one of the staff at Managing Madrid and a columnist at Football España well we're going to split this podcast into three sections where we're going to talk about Real Madrid's transitional moment from where they've come from and to where they are going and then we're going to look at a somewhat strange summer of transfer activity and then 
we're going to look at the new look tactic for this season. But let's begin with a big picture question. So Dermot, let's start with you because it feels like Real Madrid, perhaps more than any other club, love to tell a story about who they are, where it is they've come from and where they're going. So what do you think that the story looks like right now? Is there still an extent to which you think the fans are impacted by that Galacticos era? Um, do they expect to have really elite signings every single window? Um, Madrid, their self-image of themselves is definitely a place where the most, the best players in the world, the most spectacular players, the most talented players in the world play. And a, a lot of the fans would remember the Zidane, Beckham, Figo, Ronaldo, that, that kind of era, which is you know 20 years ago now, but is still very present in the, in the club down to Zidane having been the manager up until a couple of years ago. And they still like to see themselves as a, the most prestigious place where every player in the world wants to play. Um, seen that with, with Bellingham this summer where the Madrid are kind of proud of the fact that Bellingham would could possibly have earned more money in a, in a different place, but chose Madrid because of the glamour, because of it's the place where the biggest stars in the world w- want to play. Um, the fans accept, or they've been told for five, six years now from the very top of the club, from Florentino Paris, they accept that they can't compete at the very, very top of, of the transfer market, that they can't pay the, the very highest wages, um, that, as we've been saying, that the, either the, in the Premier League, the biggest clubs in the Premier League or the, the state-owned clubs are, are able to do. And, you know, because it comes from Florentino Perez, it, it's accepted by, by most Madrid fans that that's the reality of the situation. Um, but they still, they're still able to, a little bit, as Joseph said, hold two things in their head to be like not quite at the very top, paying the top salaries, but still the most glamorous, still the most powerful club in the world. So obviously history has moved on and Real Madrid, as you've said, Derma, aren't really well placed to continue to be a Galacticos club in a world where you're competing with either giant corporations or Middle Eastern states on the other hand. So how would you describe the approach that Real Madrid are using now in terms of player recruitment? Because they have obviously moved on a lot of their ageing stars and we're arriving at a, a new period for Real Madrid in terms of that recruitment strategy. We'll go with you on this, Derma. Yeah, they, they still think that they can get the best players in the world, but they have to move earlier in the market. They have to identify the, the guys who are going to be the next best players in the world in three, four, five, six years' time and get them into the club as soon as they can. Um, Vinicius Jr. is the most obvious example of that, that after Madrid had the disappointment of losing out to, to Neymar when he went to Barcelona, then they might have gone for him again, but he went to Paris Saint-Germain for the, the crazy amount of money, £222 million, um, Madrid reformulated and looked for the, the next Neymar kind of a, and went for Vinicius, Rodrigo, but other players as well. And, and that's the, the policy now is to, to get these guys over recent summers. It's been Camavinga, Chuameni, now Bellingham especially is seen as somebody who will be in three, four, five years' time will be you know the best English player, the most high-profile English player, maybe one of the best midfielders in the world or, or the best midfielder in the world, they'd like to think, um, alongside the ones they already have. And that, that's the policy, is to be smarter about it, not to be able to spend quite as much money on... You know, when Zidane and Figo and Ronaldo, those guys moved to, to the Bernabeu, they were in their mid to late 20s. Um, Beckham as well, they were all, had already proven themselves, you know, won Ballon d'Ors almost at, at, at other clubs, whereas now Madrid want to identify the guys in advance and, and get them in, develop them into the best players in the world. Hmm. Yeah, and Jose, have you noticed any rhyme or reason to the recruitment as they're doing this? Is it still the same approach as the Galactico Zero, but with more cut price options now? And younger players too, I would say. So in some ways, uh, so there is, at least to me, a core aspect of kind of the Galactico philosophy that still remains at Real Madrid, which is that I think a normal... Um, 
uh, like a normal well-run football club, what it does is that it thinks of a player profile that they need for their team and then signs according to that player. Like they're looking for that player profile and that's why they try to sign in the market. Real Madrid is still at the point where they think, let's get the biggest talent we can get at the moment and we'll think about profile fit later. So there are a bunch of examples like that, like getting Chouamini when Casemiro was still in, in the squad. Because I can tell you that, at least from my perspective, the original plan was not to sell off Ca- Casemiro. It was to have them both. Or situations where maybe you could have said, maybe Florian Wirtz is a, very, is a better signing, like it's a better profile fit with Real Madrid at the moment, but they're still going to get, say, Jude Bellingham. So Because it seems like the best and most high-profile, versatile talent that they can get. So two aspects um, where I think... So, so that fundamental aspect, I still think it's there. It's like you get the player, you get the best possible talent you can get, but there are two things that have changed compared to that Galactico era. One of them is, as Dermo mentioned, the age profile of the signings. Like now signing this top talent in, say, their late 20s is very difficult. And and also, like, I think generally in, the, in, in football, it's become unadvisable to, say, sign an attacker at 27, 28 years old. Um, the, the club learned that the hard way uh, with Eden Hazard in 2019. I think a lot of the club's current transfer policy stems from the mistakes that from learning experiences and mistakes that were made in that 2019 window. Uh, so age is one factor. And I think the other factor is that now they look for top talent that is really highly versatile. And, it, and if you look at many of these players, like Camavinga is a guy who can play at left back as well as he could play central midfield. Fede Valverde has been play, made to play Central midfield, right winger. He's had a couple games, like he played Liverpool in a right back against Liverpool in a right back position. Um, Bellingham is now being like being played almost as a striker when maybe he could have like a deeper role uh, uh, otherwise. Um, Rodrigo is a player who can play in all three positions uh, of a front three. So Real Madrid is signing top talent, but also ta- talent that is very versatile and can play wherever the coach tells them. And that, for me, is, for example, a big reason why, say, Fede Valverde succeeded at Real Madrid, but not uh, uh, Martin Odegaard, who is a player who's perhaps who perhaps needed like a more specific role in tactical context. So what do you make of the approach that they've made then? Do you Is it just a case of, okay, we're bringing in good players in the long run, that's going to be good? Or do you think that the fact that you end up with quite a lumpy squad is problematic in the longer run? At least from the club's perspective, it's a bit of getting, still getting a bunch of really good players and then thinking, okay, these guys are so good and versatile that they will figure out a way to play, that they and the coach will figure out a way to play together. So in a way, it's in that sense, it still feels a bit like old school Galactico, but in a way, it, it they somehow find a way to make sense of it in, in a way that they couldn't 20 years ago. At one point, it felt as though going into this season that there was very much a transitional phase that was being put through. We've already talked about that team at the beginning that were really so dominant in the 2010s who who won all those Champions League leagues and those players have got old now, they've moved on and these young players that you've been talking about that they brought through are now being 
paved into the team in many respects. So you've already mentioned we've got Germany, we've got Camavinga, we've got Fede Valverde, and they were just sitting on the sidelines waiting to be brought in as those older guard were, were moved on. Dermot, does it feel as though that is what has happened this season? Yeah, there's a couple of things on that. There's one other element of their transfer policy over the last couple of years has been to go for market opportunities, guys who were becoming available due to their contractual situation elsewhere who are kind of mid-career players. So that's how maybe going back to Nekros was a, was an example of that you know, a decade ago. But more recently, there's been Courtois from Chelsea, Alaba from Bayern Munich, and then again, Rudiger from Chelsea were people who Madrid, a, a second kind of stroke to their... To, to the policy of having your Vinicius and your Camavingas and your Bellinghams, also to have Alaba, Courtois and, and Rudiger, and to try and use that as a way of of transitioning the team, I guess, of moving on from uh, from that Ramos, Keylor uh, Navas, Ronaldo, Gareth Bale, Isco, all those guys who've moved on over the last like three or four years. Um, in a way... I remember when Ancelotti returned to Real Madrid from Everton a couple of years ago, and there was a lot of talk at that stage about um, about transition because Cristiano was gone, uh, Ramos was leaving a, a, as well, and there was a feeling around Madrid that Ancelotti was, was kind of a stopgap maybe because they, they went looking for different managers that summer and ended up having to go back to, to Ancelotti, who wasn't the first choice, and he was surprised, I think, to, to get the call and delighted to get, to get out of Everton at, at the time. But... They went on and won the Champions League that, that season with the amazing comebacks at, at the Bernabeu. You know, it was the, kind of the last gasp of a, some of the, the Modric and Cruz and Benzema, their last huge contributions to the team, as well as, you know, Vinicius and Rodrigo com, coming through. And then with Courtois being, you know, amazing man of the match in the final as well. So that they kind of seem to have been managing the, the transition really well at that stage. Since then, it's not gone quite as well, maybe as they would have hoped. There is still kind of a... Uh, you know, even we saw at the weekend with Modric and Cruz were, were brought back into the team to play the biggest game so far this season. The first time they started together was the Derby and that didn't go so well. So, you know, Vinicius and Bellingham, Camavinga, these guys are all still really, really young. They're all like in their early 20s. Valverde, maybe 24, 25, he's the oldest of them. And then Cruz and Modric are still kind of hanging around and are still really important to the team when they play as well, especially Cruz, you know, when he's not there, you can notice it. So it's a difficult enough job for Ancelotti to do. Maybe he's a good guy to have in there he's not you know Guardiola or Tuchel or somebody who needs to have the exact pieces that he wants and then he can try and fit them all together he and Charlie is a guy who's happy to 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 take what he's given to a certain extent and to to mold them together into the the best that he can which is a kind of a Real Madrid way of of doing things um but it also can 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 fall through I guess when it when it doesn't work out cannot be cannot go so well as, as we saw at the weekend yeah, so we focused this first section all on the narratives that are being told about what the club is and, and where they're going. Do you think that there is a, a coherent narrative then there, Jose? Or is it just the case that they sort of barrel along, trying to work things out as they go along and then claiming there was some kind of rhyme or reason to it all? Uh, that's a very good point, John. Like, as a Real Madrid fan, sometimes I'm really stuck a bit between these two narratives because sometimes you really have moments where it really feels like the club knows what it's doing. Like I, one of the things that calls my attention is, for example, when the club decided not to renew Sergio Ramos's contract, where it was cl- like it was just one. Like looking, for example, at how Barcelona struggled to let go of certain veterans. Like that moment uh, was like a good show of like, okay, we know we know what we're doing. It's time to renovate, so, like to renew. Uh, in certain areas, we let go of this player. And then, uh, the, yeah, there are certain, or 
even like even if it was not entirely intentional, like the whole bringing in Shramini uh, and then letting go of Casemiro, those there there are really moments where you feel like in a way the club knows what it's doing, and then there are other moments where it really feels like uh, some sometimes the club is just trying to like throw a bunch of, th- especially with some young recruitment, it really feels uh, like it sometimes feels like, like the club is just trying to throw things at a wall and see what sticks. So it's uh, like, for me, it's hard to stick to stick to one of the two. Cause it's really, sometimes they really give the, that feeling that they know what they're doing. Sometimes not so much. Sometimes people give them too much credit uh, for certain decisions, sometimes I feel like they don't get enough credit for certain decisions. So for me, it's just very. Sometimes it's hard for me as a Real Madrid fan to come up with like a coherent narrative. Like I do think the direction of the club is smarter than what it was uh, twenty years ago. Definitely, it's gotten more rational. It's done. Uh, it's done with more focused on getting the best young talent instead of signing older talent. That's one of the big changes. The focus on looking for more versatile players, but there are still some galactico things there. There are still some situations where the club gets players without thinking about the profile fit. And I and to me, the most disappointing aspect of the club in the, like in terms of managing. <laughs> of management is the coaching appointments because it still feels like they are very reactionary and conservative. Like the club, like it's usually people that the club already knows or that the, or that already know the club and it, they don't stray far away from that, from that. Well, this does bring us nicely towards the second section because we've talked about bringing in Chouameni, Camavinga, Fede Valverde, uh, in particularly this season, though, then becoming the the players who you expect to see on the team sheet. But there was also a marquee signing this summer, the signing of Jude Bellingham, which I think some people claimed was the final piece of the the jigsaw for Real Madrid. He was going to be the crowning piece that would usher in this new era of uh, of, of this entirely young team that we are now seeing. We're obviously going to talk about Bellingham's role in the team in more detail in a little bit but Dermot did you think that Bellingham was thought of by the club as that final piece in the puzzle that they'd been building for a number of seasons uh, Mbappe has, has that role as the, the final piece of the jigsaw and like has <laughs> held that role for three or four years now and, and you know who knows how long that, that's going to go on until he, he eventually comes to Madrid which everybody's here still assumes will happen Bellingham was just seen as a fantastic talent that Madrid needed to get and um, that he did offer something different to Jumeni and Camavinga and the uh, Valverde, the other young midfielders that they had. Basically, just as Jose was saying there, that he's like really good player who's available at what now looks like not that crazy a price that they they were able to get him out of, of Dortmund. They were able to persuade him to come. You know, maybe Liverpool weren't able to go for him. Man City didn't weren't able to go for him this year. Paris Saint-Germain didn't seem to be moving for him. So Madrid wanted to move and make sure they got him. And it's also... I wouldn't dis- discount the fact that it's it's really important for Madrid to have a, a English-speaking, marketable, uh, approachable, good-looking guy who, who they can use for not not directly for marketing, but just to have that that in their team when they think about the global reach of the club because they do they're very Spanish. It's very you know uh, Madrid very rooted in the Bernabeu and a certain type of of Madridista who born close to the Bernabeu or, or lives in Spain, but also it's a, it's a huge global brand. And to have, like, going from Beckham, Bale was supposed to be that as well, but didn't really work out in, in the same way. But even the fact that they stuck with him for so long partly was to do with the fact that he was somebody who, you know, sold a lot of jerseys, I guess, is, is a simple way of putting it. But 
generated interest in the club in English-speaking markets and, and all around the world. So Bellingham ticked so many boxes for Madrid and was available at a price that they they just said we have to go and get him. But it, it wasn't that he was the the icing on the cake or the, the final piece in the jigsaw because they know that they need a, a centre forward. They know they need somebody to to replace Benzema. And while Mbappe was still kind of a possibility, nobody knows really apart from I'm not sure if even Mbappe knows how how close it was that he was going to move to to Madrid this summer or what's going to happen next. But um, but he's still there and hangs over everything that Madrid have done in the transfer market. Yeah, which brings us to the weirdness of the summer because, as you say, it's a player who didn't actually arrive at Real Madrid who actually impacts the big narratives about Real Madrid's summer transfers in killing Mbappe. Now, as you said, Mbappe has been linked with the club for a number of seasons now and it seems it's only a matter of time before he becomes a Real Madrid player. So, yeah, you've touched on this already, Dermot, but how does Mbappe fit into the club's narrative? Is he a throwback to that Galacticus era and, and therefore necessary from that point of view to keep the fans on board to say we are still that team that are going to compete at the highest level that are going to make their move in Europe yeah for sure like Madrid and they were right they identified him when he was still at Monaco as like the guy who's going to be like a, a generational talent and um, wanted to get him then and have wanted to get him ever since and Florentino Perez has really closely identified with the the battle for Mbappe it's even gone into like how it's a battle from Madrid's old heritage against Paris Saint-Germain's new money uh, so so much has been kind of a uh, has become tangled up in Madrid's search for, for Mbappe that it's become really just important for, for Madrid to get them. Even to the fact that, even to the point of Mbappe having turned them down various times, that they, they keep coming back from all the time. The word from from Madrid hierarchy at the moment is that you know we've calmed down. We're not going to uh, get stung again, maybe, or we're not you know we're not going to keep chasing him all the time. If he was want to come, that that's fine. But you can tell from the way that they haven't signed another forward. That, that they still believe that he is the he is that final piece in the jig. So he's the guy who can bring them up to, to the next level. He is he does ticks all those boxes as well as somebody who's super articulate, super clever off the pitch, um marketing dream, um a fantastic player. Everything about him screams Galactico. Even to the point that much more than even Haaland, which is kind of funny maybe for for some people in, in, in England um and, and elsewhere, but Madrid could have pushed a lot harder for, for Haaland a couple of years ago when he was going to go to Man City. Haaland was making intimations that he, he wouldn't mind. have He may have joined Madrid over Man City even at, at the stage. But the, the feeling from Madrid was that they were going to get Mbappe, so they put all their eggs in, in the Mbappe basket, missed out on both of them in the end, and you know now have a kind of big number nine hole in, in, in the squad or a very, very top-class number nine hole in the squad. But that's just because Mbappe has been so important to them and it fit, Mbappe fits as well with the new Bernabeu. There's been an idea that when they, the new Bernabeu was open, it's good. it is a fantastic stadium. It's, all, it's almost finished now, and it's, it's been there a couple of times, and it is really, really impressive what, what, what they have done. But it's a great place to watch football, and it is going to attract fans from all around the world, and they do have all these VIP areas. Um, tickets are going to be quite expensive for them, and the idea that Mbappe was the guy who would sell those tickets and would pack the Bernabeu out, would thrill the Bernabeu, was huge. Remember when PSG played Madrid a couple of years ago um, during that amazing Helter Skelter, um, a 14th Champions League win or European Cup win for Madrid. During that, it was at the Bernabeu, during that game, and Mbappe was there, and he was, there was a point in the time when it looked like PSG were going to win. It was almost sure that PSG were going to win. Everybody in the stadium thought it, and the Madrid fans were enjoying watching Mbappe, even to the point of, like, destroying their own team. He was that good in the game. Then he missed chances. Then suddenly the game swung around completely. Madrid won it. But almost to the point of Madrid, in the psyche of Madrid, they've already signed Mbappe 
sounds a bit weird, but it, it's kind of a, a feeling that, that you get that he's almost there. So they, they still cheer for him, even though he hasn't ever joined the club, which is, um, yeah, another kind of just insight into how Madrid people tend to think. Obviously, Mbappe is an excellent player and any team could justify his inclusion into their squad. But for many of them, the issue is going to be cost. So would Real Madrid be able to absorb that cost? And wouldn't it just send them down the path that they've been trying to avoid in the last few years anyway by bringing in these younger, cheaper options? Uh, I think Madrid would definitely be able to, to afford Mbappe. And they have, you can see, they've kind of had this Mbappe fund for a couple of years now, for a long time now, that they, the money has been put aside. They've not been, ever since Eden Hazard, they haven't been splashing cash that as much as they could. COVID was one reason for that, but also just holding the money back to be able to get Mbappe. And as mentioned before, the, the feeling that Mbappe is that kind of level of star who will be able to generate so much money f- f- for the club that you never say that a player is going to pay for themselves no matter how much you, you pay for them. But the feeling that Mbappe is one of those very few players who will pack out the Bernabeu, who will attract loads of sponsors, who will attract fans all over the world win trophies, which is really important also to, to boosting the revenues. So the, I wouldn't say that Madrid would go, there's no price that Madrid wouldn't pay pay for Mbappe. But if it turned out to be a world record price, then they would pay for it. The other thing is that the hope that because of all the, the shenanigans with PSG, with his contract and the, the relationship there that, you know, is awful, then maybe it's back again, maybe it's going to be bad again in the future, that they might be able to, to leverage that, take advantage of that and get him for for below his, his market rate, which would go along with what they did with on a, a much bigger scale, but a similar deal to to Courtois or, or Alaba or uh, or Rudiger deals in the past. And did we see that as themselves being being smart and being able to play the market again? Now, Jose, there's obviously questions here about how Vinicius Jr. fits with all of this, given that he and Mbappe play similar roles on the same side of the pitch. So is there any concern from your end as a fan that bringing in someone like Mbappe is going to actually impact one of the better players that Real Madrid already has? Yes. So the situation that this hypothetical situation that has been set up with Mbappe and Vinicius, since both of them would prefer, would rather play on the left wing, um, it reminds me a bit, it's not exactly the same, but it reminds me a bit of the time where both Real Madrid was going for having that uh, Karim ben- that trio with Cristiano Ronaldo, Karim Benzema, Gareth Bale, while and Barcelona was going uh, for the trio of Neymar, of Neymar, Luis Suarez, and Messi. Uh, in in both tri- in both trios, there was a concern of how do you make this work out? There is a risk to this. Uh, but if they figure out a way to do it, then the potential to dominate Europe is immense. And I feel very similarly about this now, about this now, where there are some risks of, say, Vinicius and Mbappé maybe not understanding each other and having too much overlap on certain areas of the pitch. But if the, if the team and these players can figure an arrangement out, then you have two of the most impactful attackers of their generation and you would ensure, like you would ensure being a favorite uh in Champions League for for the next decade so there is a risk to it but also the potential is large uh i also think that sometimes uh too much is made about like them playing in a similar zone because uh, how do i put it uh, Vinicius has played for a long time with a striker that already had a tendency to move over to the left a lot. That was Karim Benzema, who all, often liked to move into the left wing, and then Vinicius could go a bit inside. And I don't see why a similar a similar dynamic couldn't happen 
with Mbappé, say, starting as a striker, and then he moves also into the left. So this is like it's so it's a dynamic that we saw a lot with uh, Vinicius uh, with Vinicius and Benzema, and I think it could be reproduced also with Mbappé and Vinicius. But yeah, but it is, but there is a risk in that. I do think that it's at least from the perspective of the club. It's a risk the club is willing to take in order to do it because if they if it works out then they really had they they really have the beginning they really have the beginning of a dynasty that can dominate Europe for a decade. And this impact and influence of Mbappe on the Real Madrid transfer window does seem to have gone even further than just the rumours of a guy who may be turning up because it seems as though Real Madrid uh, brought in Hosselu as a, a striker, as a stopgap after Karim Benzema left this, this summer. So do we think that this is evidence of the club tweaking the squad to make Mbappe work in the future then? Was he was this his role simply as a, as a stopgap striker to mean that in a year's time then uh, Mbappe can be brought in without too much of a problem with respect to the squad, Dermot? Yeah, for, for sure. Um Hosele was brought in to replace Mariano in in the squad thinking in that Mariano was the backup striker, you know, didn't play very much at all over the last three or four years. But but Hosele is was somebody who came in to take his place in the squad similar enough salary, similar enough kind of standing, a guy who can um good in the air as well, but to come in and play the Copa del Rey games, to come off the bench, um almost leaving not to show Mbappe that we're still leaving a, a place for him. But, you know, to, to, for example, Harry Kane, there were some people at Madrid, maybe even Carlo Ancelotti, who would have loved to sign Harry Kane this summer, who would have said, look, OK, let's forget about Mbappe. If he doesn't want to come here, let's let's worry about him in, into the future. Let's go sign Harry Kane, who's available. Uh, England captain, scores lots of goals. is almost a guarantee. Is somebody not dissimilar to Benzema also in the way that he can come deep, link the play, uh, and also get on the end of things in the box, you know, Almost a no-brainer, you would have thought. But Madrid never really considered it. They looked at his age, said just he's too old, and we don't want to, to fill that gap in, in the squad. We don't want to sign another top centre-forward this summer. It, it's not part of our plan. Hoselu was, of the the backup options, was ideal. Somebody who knew the club, had been there as a as a kid, knows some of the players really well. You know, His wife's married to Danny Carvajal's wife. Um, just perfect fit to, to come in, knows La Liga really well, has that extra kind of plan B type of thing to him as well, where, you know, he's, he's really good in the air and he's good at putting the ball up. Everything was perfect for Hoselu, but it, it had little or nothing to do really with, with with Mbappe. Whether Mbappe came or not, they were always going to sign Hoselu. And then, Jose, in terms of the rest of the transfer window for Real Madrid, what did you make of it as, as a fan particularly? I think the lack of a striker, like the lack of a striker signing, like in supposedly waiting for Mbappe is really where most of the fan base would feel like the squad is weaker than last year. And I think like if we look at it objectively, it is a weaker squad than than last year. So if we look at some roles, so say um, on the right wing, uh, Marco Asensio, who was kind of the backup right winger, ends up leaving. The one who comes in is Brahim Diaz, um, who, uh, who, uh, who was with uh, uh, AC Milan and then come, comes back to Madrid. He's a good player, good dribbler, but a player with a lot less end product than Marco Asensio. So you lose a bit out on the on that comparison. Then, if you look at Mariano versus Joselu, it's definitely a win. Like Joselu is like well, Maria, Mariano Diaz became practically a meme among the Real Madrid community, and 
yeah, like Jose Luis seen as a major improvement on that, a, a far more reliable striker who even now, like in this situation where he's been thrown into more of a starting role than we ever thought, I think he's been doing, he's been doing fairly well. Of course, there are, we can't have wild expectations about how much he can score, but I think he's been doing fairly well. So it is seen as, so on, so on one side, one of the backup up, new backup options is seen uh, as perhaps not as good as the one that left. Jose Lu is seen as an improvement. Uh, there's been an improvement on the left back side where last year the backup, uh, the backup le- left back was Eduardo Camavinga because there was no other option if Ferland Mendy got injured, usually because the, uh, David Alaba really prefers to play center back. So the, him playing left back tends not to be a preferred alternative. It is done from time to time, but he'd rather not play that role. So many times last season, the left back option was Eduardo Camavinga, who in some ways did really well in that role, but not a proper left back. So now Fran Garcia, uh, former, uh, Real Madrid Academy player who was playing with Rayo Vallecano comes in. And now it feels like the club has like a more proper left back rotation with Mendy and Fran Garcia. So those are, then there's the whole, uh, part of the Ardaguler signing, uh, a t- young Turkish attacking midfielder who it's a bit of a weirder fit in the squad because I, it, it feels like it's more of like, okay, like a 20 million euro bet on the future, but we don't quite know where to put him in the squad. It was a bit of a weird bet. So I I still don't know what role exactly he takes in the squad. Um, And then, of course, the biggest loss is in the striker position where Karim Benzema leaves and there's really no replacement, assumedly because the club is waiting for Mbappé next year. And that's the biggest loss. And even though I think there have been some gains in the backup striker position with Jose Lu and in the backup uh, uh, left back. Well, at this point, Fran Garcia is almost a starter, but it's like there's been an improvement in the left back position with Fran Garcia. I think all of that gets offset by the major loss uh, of Karim Benzema. And of course, all of this gets made even worse by the long-term injuries of Eder Militao and Thibaut Courtois that, well, Courtois gets replaced by Kepa, which is a massive downgrade. And then there's really no, repl- and the club didn't go for any replacement on Eder Militao. So what was already kind of a downgrade compared to last year's squad gets made even worse by the long-term injuries to these two key defensive players for Real Madrid. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So going into the season then, Dermot, what were the general narratives about what expectations were for Real Madrid? Were the expectations that they would perform in a title challenge and do well in, in Europe? Or is there, there some questions that there may be some issues here? Yeah, when you talk to people at Real Madrid or the official line from Real Madrid is always that, you know, at the start of every season, we're going out to win everything and that we should definitely be able to win win La Liga. There was a feeling that Barcelona were quite lucky last season that Madrid were, had a better first eleven for sure than Barcelona when they matched up. There was that Copa del Rey game that they felt, you know, showed the true levels of, between the teams. It was a feeling that they'd underperformed last season. Ancelotti was under a lot of pressure a lot of talk about, about his future at, at the end of last season, but again, he stayed on possibly due to a lack of a really obvious replacement that they would sign to come in and take over for him. And in Europe, there's a feeling that again, that they were going to have to be those underdogs that they were going to, if they were going to win the Champions League or if they are going to win the Champions League this season, it would have to be similar enough to a couple of years ago where they know that Man City, Paris Saint-Germain have been able to expand them in the in the transfer market and maybe have better players, but that Madrid have that indefinable extra that the Bernabeu brings, that their tradition brings, that their confidence in the Champions League, their ability to rise to the occasion on the big nights, that that could be enough to lift a squad that they know is not as good as the squad of 2016-2017. But because they are Real Madrid, there's always a feeling that that could be enough for them to to at least be competitive. It's not like it will be a failure if we don't win the Champions League but to, to be competitive. But if they only win the Copa del Rey like they won last season, then it will be a failure for sure this season. It's not, it's, it's Real Madrid and it's not good enough, especially if it's Barcelona who are winning La Liga or Atletico Madrid. If you lose to your, your rivals, you see them celebrating and you're not celebrating, then that's not good. So that, that's the pressure that Ancelotti and the squad were under as the season started. And that brings us nicely to the final section of this podcast then, looking towards this new look approach of Real Madrid so far this season. So one of the big questions, as we've said, was how Carlo Ancelotti was going to fit everyone on his squad in onto the pitch. And the way that he answered that question was by introducing a new shape, the 4-4-2 diamond. So Jose, can you walk us through that shape and tell us how it works? Yes, of course. So... With the the diamond, it's an interesting change because Real Madrid for the last few years has really been uh, the land of 4-3-3s and there's really been relatively, there's been some experiments from time to time, but the shape for the last, uh, since the 2016-17 season, the shape has really kind of stuck, well, since the 2017-2018 was still a diamond. So the last five years, it's really been most, uh, the club has stuck mostly to the 4-3-3. The last time, the club had used this midfield diamond was back in the 2016-2018 Sidan era where they were playing this midfield diamond with Casemiro, Kroos, Modric, and Isco at the t- tip of the diamond. Again, it's 
Bale was injured and you had this really talented number 10 in Isco that you needed to to fit somehow uh, in the starting lineup because he was so good. And the solution Zidane found was the diamond. That's the last time this was used. And this time around, uh, uh, the club was in a situation where, okay, they lost Benzema. No starting level forward uh, was, was acquired during the transfer window. So now you have two kind of starting level forwards with Vinicius and Rodrigo and a bunch of really good midfielders. And the way Ancelotti thought to do this, again, was going back to the midfield diamond. Uh, Interestingly enough, I mean, among top clubs uh, in the last decade, Real Madrid is probably one of the clubs that has used the diamond shape uh, most frequently. Um, uh, and And right now, say, if I walk you through the starting lineup, well, Right now, Kepa is the starting keeper since Courtois is injured. Uh, Militao is injured, so the so the starting center back pair is Antonio Rudiger and David Alaba. Uh, then on the fullbacks, Dani Carvajal usually starts if he's not injured. And then right now, with Ferland Mendy's injuries, Fran Garcia is starting is starting very frequently. Which, despite his deficits, he has a lot of intensity for this fullback role in the midfield diamond. And then. The actual midfield diamond, the one thing that's for certain is that Jude Bellingham is at the tip of that diamond. Normally, the six, uh, the deepest midfielder would be uh, Chouameni. There have been some changes in the last couple games that sometimes you've had Camavinga or Kroos as the six, but generally the trend has been having Chouameni as the six. And then in the other roles, there is a bit of, there has been some rotation throughout the season. Sometimes it's Kroos, sometimes Modric, sometimes Cavaminga, sometimes Valverde. Uh, I think a big statement was made on the opening day of the league when Ancelotti went and played in all the four young midfielders in the midfield diamond. So you had Camavinga, Chouameni, Valverde, and then Bellingham at the tip of the diamond. And it really felt like a statement doing this on the first day of the league really felt like a statement of this is going to be the future. This is what we're betting on. Uh, interestingly enough, um, there have been some rumors in the press that Kroos and Modric were a bit unhappy with this situation. And funnily enough, the moment you start getting those rumors in the last couple ga- in the last couple games, we've seen them play more often to the point that Ancelotti did this change uh, for the derby against uh, Atletico, where he kind of changed the formation to a Christmas tree, did not start Jose Lu, did not start Chouameni, in order to start Kroos and Modric against the big opponent. So generally, the, the feeling was that we're go- that the team was going to this midfield diamond, accommodating like their four young midfielders. Over time, Kroos and Modric are coming back and starting a, have been starting a bit more the last couple games. Well, I think the the real winner from the original four four two diamond would seem to have been Jude Bellingham, who, as you say, has been playing at the tip of that diamond, and he's obviously had an incredible rate of return playing in that system, picking up five goals and an assist in six games, and just really enjoying. I think that role, being able to just push forward onto the forward line um, out of the midfield. So, Dermot, what have you made of Bellingham's performances so far? Uh, it's it's been incredible, really, the the way that he's settled in, just how. You know, credit to him for the personality that he's shown, the character that he's shown, as well as the, the natural talent that he has and the game intelligence and everything. But just being able to come to Madrid and settle in and start like that, you know, very few players in, in history, even people like Zidane and Figo and uh, Cristiano Ronaldo even needed a little bit of time to get used to Madrid. But it, it just seemed Bellingham to settle in so quickly. 
it, there's been a lot of fortune in it as well, though. You know, there's no way he's going to continue to score as many goals. The ball has dropped to him. You know, he's been very clever, being in the right place at the right time. But it, it's it's not something that that's going to be sustainable over the course of the season. And it, it's you know actually has a big tactical problem. The squad is really heavy on on midfielders and really light on on centre forwards. And he's doing the best that he can to to try and work it out. Vinicius getting injured as well has been a a big problem for trying to bed the system in because it. It has kind of meant that he's had to play Jose Lu more, which does make sense to an extent. But I don't think Ancelotti sees Jose Lu, and I probably wouldn't either, as being a, like a really top-level player. So what Ancelotti wants to do is get the best, um, the most talent onto the pitch uh, as he can, and he's come up with the the diamond to um, to do to as as a way of doing that to get as many midfielders in, into the team. And I think we saw the the problems with it at the weekend. Like I would also say that. Cruz has been really, maybe of all Madrid's midfielders so far this season, apart from Bellingham scoring the goals, but Cruz has been the one who's knit the team together, who when he's not playing in the team, you notice that, that he's missing more than anybody else. Um, and they are still reliant on him and Modric as kind of the, the brain of the team or the tactical um, nous of, of the team. So there's, there's plenty of problems with the with the diamond. I think Madrid are still quite weak in the fullback positions. Um, Danny Carvajal started off season quite well, but also has been caught out defensively a few times for the, the Real Sociedad goal. And the, the diamond does put a lot of uh, responsibility on the fullbacks to provide almost all the weight in the team to get up, put in crosses, then get back and cut out crosses at the back post. And Simeone had definitely identified it. He was quite proudly telling us after the game on, on Sunday that they'd worked on getting the ball wide, putting crosses in, attacking the back post. And that's how all three goals came. So I'd have certainly much sympathy with Ancelotti because he's, he has to deal with the, the pieces that he's given and, and he's trying to come up with the, the Rombo as the, the best that he thinks he can do with the squad that he has. But uh, it's going to be difficult for them, I think. They're going to have to rely on players like Bellingham hitting those amazing moments of form. Vinicius coming back and you know clicking and starting to score a lot of goals. Rodrigo's only scored once, I think, from like 20 shots so far this season. He's going to have to start scoring goals as well. It's not going to be a. They're not going to be like a machine who are able to control games completely. And you know, I was going to say bore team, bore their opponents in a Man City type of way. But they're not going to be that type of a a, a, a machine like team. It's going to be individual quality. And the, the Rumbles about getting as many of the the best individuals onto the pitch, and then I was going to say hoping is not the right word, but expecting them to be able to deliver, especially in the biggest games when the pressure comes on. Yeah, Jose, I was going to talk to you a little bit about some of the weaknesses that, that this approach has. You've talked about two formations there, the 4-4-2 diamond and then the Christmas tree formation, um, where you're basically flipping the, the front diamond, uh, sorry, the front triangle around uh, the other way. I think the big problem that, that Dermot has identified there is narrowness. Um, so what have you made so far of, uh, of some of the, the problems that, that Real Madrid have faced and some of the solutions they could find for uh, lessening those problems? Yes. So I think to, to begin with, so I'm going to give a brief overview about this. If uh, listeners want to get like an even more thorough written overview of this, Michael Cox actually has a very good piece, uh, wrote a very good piece in the Madrid Derby where he explores how uh, Atletico took advantage of Real Madrid's narrowness. Uh, and that's really the key issue with this diamond system, uh, with the diamond and Christmas tree systems. They're both, both of them keep... Uh, the midfield and especially the forwards very narrow, and that has a lot of impact, uh, especially out of possession. Well, it has an impact in all phases. So first of all, like when attacking, 
and defending. The fullbacks are the ones to, to the ones who have to hold the width. They're the ones often in charge of trying to do to doing the width and attack. But also in defense, it means that they can be more easily overloaded. So what happened a lot of the time uh, against Atletico is that. Um, the the fullbacks could be easily overloaded, especially if you don't have a central midfielder who can go back, who can shift over to uh, to the wing quickly enough in order to cover. And when, for example, the central midfielder beside Fra, uh, beside uh, Fran Garcia is Tony Cross, someone who does not have that work rate, that's when it really that's when the issue starts showing because. Tony Kroos is still at this moment the most impactful midfielder Real Madrid has on the ball, but there are limitations out of possession and especially in the context of this midfield diamond that can 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 really make his lack of work rate unsustainable for the entire defensive system. So in order to make this midfield diamond work, you need fullbacks who are really good at going back and forth, defending well, and then almost single-handedly uh, providing attack on the wings. Uh, so they have to be both fullbacks and wingers. And then the central midfielders have to be really good at covering ground. And if you play uh, Luka Modric and Toni Kroos, that becomes very difficult, which is why uh, perhaps the nicest implement, or at least the implementation of the diamond that I like the most was the one that we saw against Athletic Bilbao in the first uh, in the first match day wh- that featured just the whole young midfield quartet because that's for sure a midfield that has the legs to do all the coverage that's required in order to support the fullbacks but that's ultimately that narrowness is ultimately the main weakness of this diamond and also of the of the Christmas tree and it's the thing and it gets made worse by the fact that it demands a lot of the fullbacks, and I would say that right now, out of the current fullback uh, squad in, at Real Madrid, it's one of the weakest ones they've had in a while. Oh, in in general, the club has kind of failed to address the holes in the fullback positions. Uh, Dani Carva, out of the current fullbacks in the squad, Lucas Vasquez, Dani Carvajal on the right, Ferlan Mendy, and Fran Garcia on the left. I would say that there's only one who can really deliver what's ex- what's necessary for this diamond, uh, and that's Danny Carvajal, and that's pending his physical fitness. So right now he's injured for he he got a, a minor injury, which happens rather frequently. So that's the other thing. There's a, this system that puts a lot of pressure in the fullbacks, and it's not clear that the fullbacks are good enough to deliver in this system. Hmm. And we've mentioned there the the loss in the Madrid derby um, against Atletico. This also happened in the same week that Barcelona managed a famous last ten minutes comeback against Celta Vigo. So, Dom, I'm interested in how this these set of results have actually affected the early predictions for the La Liga title race in Spain. I think the the biggest kind of takeaway, the my biggest takeaway from the game at the weekend was that Atletico are still in the title race. It's still unlikely that they're going to win it, but had they lost the game, it would have just been down to, to Madrid against Barcelona. Then, between Madrid and Barcelona, it's the typical thing that happens here, that everything swings around, that the previous week Madrid had won, you know, five out of five, they were flying, Barca had a lot of new players, you know, suddenly Madrid were like, this is going to be easy almost, or, you know, we're, we're on for a, a Liga win here. Then they go to Atletico and get well beaten, also the manner of the, the way they were beaten almost without putting up a fight, and suddenly it's like, oh, Ancelotti's under huge pressure, this is going to be a tough season, we're going to have to turn this around. It had... Um, 
because that's what happened at Madrid that if you lose to especially to Atletico or, or to Barcelona it, it hurts everybody right up to the top of the club and there's a, there's a need to, to react to that sometimes the manager is the one who pays for it sometimes it's players sometimes it's the media the referees it has to be somebody has to pay and in this case Ancelotti was almost immediately under pressure um, the, it reminded me quite a lot of a game a good few years ago back in 2015 when Ancelotti during Ancelotti's first spell as Madrid manager when they went to Calderon and got beaten 4-0 which people might remember as Cristiano Ronaldo's 30th birthday and there was a Kevin Roldan concert which was badly timed for, for the night that when Madrid were supposed to be licking their wounds after getting beaten by a dead coat they were out, out partying more seriously is just feeling of a team of Ancelotti not having the, the players that he needs to do what, what he wants to do and him possibly being the fall guy for it. Um, so it's going to be a tough one for, for him to recover from. I think he needs a big result. And the Clasico is coming up. It's kind of been been circled in, in everybody's minds um, from the start of the season, but as a kind of moment that, OK, it's, I think it's the 20th of, of October, about a month's time. So both managers will have had time to, to work out what their their plan is kind of for the season. Hopefully Madrid will have, or from Madrid's point of view, Vinicius will be back and scoring goals. Uh, Barca will also have worked out, you know, with Joe Cancelo and Joe Felix, how things are going to work for, for them this season. Uh, and we can see, but it, it looks 50-50 to me. It's very hard to, to say. It looks kind of like a, a it's going to depend on a, on how that game goes, how the two managers react to it, how the, the general fan bases react to it. Because if both Madrid and Barcelona, momentum comes into it a lot. If you build a lead and you get ahead, suddenly, like last season, Barca were almost like champions elect by, by January, February, which happened quite a few times in recent years. And I have a feeling, this is just my kind of personal feeling, that something similar might happen this season, that if a team can can get a five, six-point lead, um, neither of the teams are really that strong, so that um, yeah, whoever can do that can can go on and win the title. And I guess this could be me reacting to what happened over the last couple of days. As you say, like we did have been well beaten. Barca's looked like they were, you know, didn't play well against Celta at all, but, but pulled it out of the, the fire in the end. So you'd make Barca kind of favourites, I guess, on the back of that. But, um, you know, first 80 minutes of the game, they didn't look great either. So it's, it's still all to play for. Yeah, and interesting hearing you saying that Carlo Ancelotti is under fire almost immediately with just a single win, uh, sorry, a single loss, I should say. Um, but there does seem to be an unacknowledged acceptance that Ancelotti is off to take up the Brazil national team job at the end of the season. So um, do you think that the outcome of this season is is sort of going to hang on whether or not he, he goes or not? Will it be the case that if it doesn't go too well for him, then he'll just uh, ride off into the Brazilian sunset? Yeah, I... I'm not sure. My feeling on this has always been that Carlo Ancelotti loves being Real Madrid manager more than he would, more than anything else in the world. And he, in an ideal world, he would stay, get a new contract, uh, and continue on. Um, especially after having won the Champions League in his, his first season back, stuck to it even, even while it looked like he was about to go and join Brazil. And the Brazil Federation were sure that he was going to come and join them. Um, I still had a feeling that maybe he will stay, and I still believe that that Ancelotti's number one best thing that he can do with his life is just. just live in Madrid, enjoy life here in the Spanish capital that he loves and, and be the Real Madrid manager. But it's not really in his hands anymore. It depends how things go this season. Unless they you know, win the league well or they win the Champions League, then it's hard to see Florentino Perez re- renewing his contract and maybe he will then end up uh, as the Brazil manager. But um, Antoine's got out of some tight squeaks before um, and I've, I just have a lot of respect for him. I think he's... he's underrated as a manager even though it's it's kind of hard considering he's won so much and he's not a tactical genius I think it's fair to say but he's very good at at getting players getting the top players to perform from in, in the biggest games which as Real Madrid manager is, is kind of your job 
Um, so yeah, it depends on how things go from here. Has there been any rumours about potential replacements were he to leave, Dermot? The, the one that came out this week, which is somebody was always going to come out after they had lost the game, was, was Jabi Alonso. Um, Jabi Alonso is doing a great job at, at Bayer Leverkusen, and I think everybody who's been following Jabi Alonso even closely believes that he's going to be a, a top manager at one stage. And almost, you know, speaking to some people who know him quite well over the summer, he's in no rush to, to leave Leverkusen and kind of knows that he'll have his pick of the top jobs, whether he wants to be Liverpool manager after Klopp or whether he wants to be Real Madrid manager at, at some stage, then it, it will inevitably happen. Uh, Raul is the other one who, who's who's there, who almost went to Villarreal a few weeks ago, which would have been would have been very interesting um, to see how he, he, he got on there. But he's, you know, if something, say, Madrid get hammered in, in, in the classical, for instance, uh, and Florentino Perez decides that a change has to be made, Raul is the most likely to, to step up and get the job as Zidane did, um, you know, back in, in 2016 when when he came in first. So they're, they're the two names which are most likely. There's, there's other they're always linked with, with lots of different coaches, but as as I pointed out earlier on, like they've been quite conservative with the, the people who they've gone for in the end. They've also been turned down. There's kind of, I, I have a feeling that some of the top coaches. This is this is only my inclination. I was not that what I learned, but like your Thomas Tuchel's or, or or people like that that they know that Madrid is not a great place for to be a systems manager and to go in and you're not going to have much control over transfers. You're not going to be able to. You're not going to have that much control over like what time training is on, you know, how long it lasts, all, all that stuff. You know, the coach is there to, to coach the players and to, to accept what he's given. Somebody um, like Anshadi is ideal for that. Um, so, yeah, I think Alonso or Raul is, is most likely to be the next manager. Jose, how impactful do you think that the next manager will be on the future of, of Real Madrid? What will the next chapter of Real Madrid look like if they get the manager right? Yeah, so the next one... It, every time, at least in the last five years, that Real Madrid has been at this crossroads of who the next manager will be, uh, at least for me, there's always been that uh, that fork in the road of like, what does the club want to be? Do, do, do they want like another kind of conservative appointment of like someone who knows the club well, but maybe is not necessarily the best at developing young talent? Or do they want to go for a more adventurous appointment that Perhaps would be best to develop that young talent, and and this is and this is really like the big crossroads for the club again. That's going to happen uh, at the at the end of this season. I I agree with Dermo that I think if for independently of whatever rumors of Ancelotti to Brazil there are, if he has a really good season with Real Madrid, there's nothing that there's no Brazil that's going to prevent that's going to prevent him from staying another year in in Madrid if he does well. Um, if it doesn't, if it doesn't go well, then yeah. So the, it will depend a lot on what the appointment is. I think I am of course a bit more on the side of the adventurous appointment, despite the risks it could entail, like despite the risk of having like this more, say a man, a manager like Julian Nagelsmann in who's a bit countercultural to Real Madrid. I think there's potential from that union, especially if you see, the players that the club has at the moment, because I think even under Ancelotti, there's still this kind of mismatch, like mismatch philosophy wise. For example, uh, Ancelotti still wants to start Kroos and Modric because in his head, that's his idea of control 
in a football game. And independ- and even if Kroos and Modric are not able to control games as well as they did before, he still believes in that form of control. Uh, in the modern game, that maybe looks a bit different. And definitely this new midfield unit of Fede Valverde, of, Pe- of Bellingham, of Schramini, of Camavinga, they can control games, but in a different way to how Kroos and Modric do it. And sometimes it does feel like there's a bit of a mismatch with Ancelotti in that regard. And and I sometimes do wonder if perhaps a younger, more modern coach like Xavi Alonso or Nagelsmann would be a better fit for that midfield core. And that's that's really like the defining question. It's like, do Real Madrid want to go for this kind of appointment? Or do they want to keep in the conservative line that they've been going for the last few years of just get someone who from within the club or who had been with the club previously and and keep going on that line? That's really the crossroads. And depending on that, there are a lot of out. Like, it's interesting because I don't. Th- I think regardless of the the path that the club chooses, whether they go more conservative or more adventurous with the coaching appointment, I think they've accumulated so much quality uh, in midfield areas, uh, in midfield areas with uh, with the forward line with with uh, Vinicius and Rodrigo, that I think if they just fill out certain... Like, in the end, I still believe that the players that, the, the players that come in next summer will still be more important than the managerial appointment. So if Kylian Mbappé, for example, manages to come next summer, that will still have a bigger impact than whether Raul or Xavi Alonso is the coach. So I still believe that the players will st- will have the big the players that are required will have the biggest impact on the future of the club. Hmm. Well, we began this episode by talking about the story that Real Madrid likes to tell about itself, where it came from and where it's headed. But I'm interested to hear what you two think uh, the f- next few chapters of that story are going to look like. So, Jose, what do you think the, the next few years of Real Madrid promise? I think the club has done a fair, like there have been hiccups. There are still some holes, say, in the fullback position and the striker position. But I think the club has done a generally good job of renovating the squad. And I still think that even though sometimes the coaching appointments can be uninspiring, uh, I think they've gotten in their own particular way. Like, like I said, it's like this younger, modern Galactico approach. Um, it, they kind of found a way to make it work. And I think the future of the club is not guaranteed, but I see it in a pretty good place in the next five years as in, I can still see this club c- consistently being a challenger at the, the at the top of Europe, like with the current crop of players. There are still certain pieces missing, like I said, the fullbacks, kind of the striker as the crown jewel that could be, a- a- and whether it will be Mbappé or so, or another high level striker, that crown jewel of the project is still missing at the moment, but. Uh, I am fairly confident in the future of the club because the current crop of young players is already quite good. Hmm. And Dermot, how would you answer that question? What do you see the future of Real Madrid looking like from here? Yeah, I think the finishing the stadium is, is huge for Madrid, both for their, their self-image and for the commercial uh, revenues that, that it's going to build. And getting that striker, like it has to be Mbappe really, but if if they just decide, okay, we're not going to offer Mbappe and they can sign to another brilliant young striker, that would be the 
the thing that they need to go on. I don't think they're going to dominate European football. I think Man City and PSG and who knows, maybe Newcastle and, and Arsenal and other clubs are going to be able to, to outbid them for, for players into the future. But they're still Madrid. They still have that heritage and that, that, that feeling that when the Champions League comes around, that they can do it. Longest term, the biggest question is, is over Florentino Perez, who can't be president forever, who's, who's into his 70s now. That may be a question for, for, for another podcast. But that's the, while Florentino Perez remains the president of, of Real Madrid, that they're going to be like that. They're going to be proud of themselves. They're going to be ultra competitive. They're going to be taken on UEFA. They're going to be taken on La Liga. They're going to be taken on the Premier League. They'll be like, um, punchy and, and powerful and, and going for things and, that's the image that they want to see of themselves. And as long as Florentino Perez is, is the president of Real Madrid, that, that's the way they're going to be. They're going to be punchy. They're going to be competitive. They're going to be ambitious. They're going to feel that they deserve to, to win everything. You know, if when things go wrong, it's going to be somebody else's fault. But things are going to go right for them more often than they go wrong. They're not going to win the Champions League every year. They still, you know, will have be up against your Man Cities and your PSGs. But they will believe that at the start of every season, you know, they're among the, the, the people who can win the Champions League. And when the stars align, then they will be able to do it. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been fantastic to talk to you about Real Madrid. If the listeners want to catch what Dermot is putting out, he is writing on The Athletic. So head over there to find all of his stuff on Real Madrid. He also has a book, Football Fans Guide to Madrid. And you can find him on Twitter at Dermot M. Corrigan as well. And Jose Perez uh, is available if you want to find his stuff on particularly Spanish football at Managing Madrid, uh, a fan podcast and outlet. And also he has a column in Football España. And he can be found on Twitter at JC Perez underscore. Guys, thank you so much for coming on today. Mm-hmm.